Hello and welcome to the show that teaches you the things your parents and teachers are too afraid to. The Helios blog. Today, Jordan Peterson talks about the epidemic that dare not speak its name. Childlessness. Involuntary childlessness. You could see the process in his mind realizing we're not going to need anywhere near the number of elementary school teachers that we have now and what that might mean for him. Um, So the documentary starts literally with me asking people in countries, why is this happening? Mm -hmm. And um, frankly, you know, I I was hoping, um, you know, in this entire project, I was expecting at some point to sit down and do some form of regressive model, you know, to find a correlation between something that would link uh, these small dragons, these, uh, you know, falling birth rates in Japan, Germany, and Italy because they were happening at the same time. And they were sp- it's called wo- womanist, wokeist religion. Spreading. I never got to that point, and I'm very grateful I didn't because I probably would have find, found something like, you know, ice cream sales, you know, happened at the same time. Very and spurious Some spurious thing would have yeah, come It's very up. hard to, to identify. the. Well, it seems obvious that, I mean, one of the causes, the distal causes, I would say clearly, is the promotion of the birth control pill. But even that is a somewhat shallow answer because there's a very specific set of social and economic realities, zeitgeist, that even made the invention and distribution and acceptance of the birth control possible, right? You had to have the psychological stage set for the acceptance of that technology, the demand for that technology before it could be developed or implemented. And so... So the culture was messed up before the, the pill. Well, so, okay, so you, you, well, you started the documentary, you're in chapter one, you're starting to ask people what's going on. What are they telling you? Yeah, well, no one had a clear answer. And that, you know, maybe that was overly simplistic, but what I was trying to do is find some common thread. Mm-hmm. But let me just, if I can, talk about contraceptives, mm-hmm. because there's a wonderful counterexample. The contraceptive pill was not legalized in Japan until 1990. Hmm. And it was only legalized because Viagra was legalized. And at that point, women said, wait, you've been blocking the contraceptive pill and now you're allowing Viagra. And at that point, it was made So you had the precipitous decline in birth rate? From 73. You had an increase in mass abortions. Yeah, it's not the pill so much as it is womanist, wokeist dogma. So this was a societal issue with right, or without. Right. So, okay, so that shows that it's something deeper than the pill. Something deeper. And also, if you look at other countries, particularly UK at the time, France too, US, where you also had access to the contraceptive pill, you were not seeing falling birth rates. And a lot of people um, would say, well, it's obvious it was industrialization. It was something to do with urbanization. Mm-hmm. But the correlations aren't there if you look at, well, why did this only happen in those three countries? And the answer comes back to, I'd love people to see it unfold in the documentary, but it's a sudden increase in this unplanned, involuntary childlessness happened in Germany, Italy, those countries at the same time. Well, it's definitely followed. the case that as women become more educated, they have fewer children. And... That, that's now the precise causal pathway there isn't obvious. One simple 
suggestion would be that it is a matter of accidental delay. I mean, I've seen this in my daughter. You know, my daughter, although she had terrible health problems and that complicated her life a lot, she had initially thought that she might want to go be a physician. But that's like 12 years. And she was also very oriented towards having children. Um, and she's managed to have one child despite her health problems. But that desire to pursue an intense educational pathway does exist in conflict, certainly with an early start to, to family development. If you presume that that doesn't matter because you've got time, you're not going to find out that isn't true for 10 years in your own life. And maybe the culture won't find out that's true for like 30 years. You know, I mean, we still tell young, young women who are 19. <laughs> I made a comment on that was clipped on an Instagram reel by someone. Yeah, you have infinite time, uh, 19-year-olds. Discover yourself, you know, instead of getting married and having children. About the fact that we always lie to young women about what's going to be important in their lives. We tell them it's going to be all career. Said, you know, I've worked in female-dominated industries my whole life. And what I've observed is, among men and women alike, that it's a very rare person for whom career is the most important thing in their life. Even if they're men, although it's true for more men, it's true for virtually no women by the time they hit 30. And the amount of vitriol that comment generated was unparalleled. And that's something because I've had plenty of vitriol generated from things I said, but that was, and it was all young women, you know, talk. Big surprise. Yeah, we have time. Don't, don't, uh, don't tell us what to think, what to do. Talking about how some... We're strong and independent old white guy like me had no right to tell young women what to do with their bodies, which I most certainly was not. But, but it is, you, you can see a simple pathway there, right? It's like, well, we have this avenue where we can pursue our career and our education and everything else we want, and then we'll be able to solve the problem of having a family. The problem with that is, well, it's hard enough to find a mate when you're 23, 24, by the time you're 30, it's even more difficult. And by yep, because you've reduced the dating pool greatly. By the time you're 35, it's starting to become well nigh impossible to find a mate and get pregnant and have a family, especially if you're going to have more than one kid. And so, well, so there's a there's a direct conflict there uh, between the avenues that are open to women and the the need to to strike while the iron's hot on the reproductive front. Nobody really knows how to reconcile that. I mean, it's odd because women live about seven years longer than men. So it could be the case that the societal norm could be that women have their children when they're quite young and then go back to school in their 30s. That would actually work out. In principle, that could work out quite nicely, but we don't have the norms in place to make that a possibility. But we have to start addressing exactly this because if we don't, you know... I, I, Birth rates will decline in every country. To me, I can't, I mean, there's so many ideas today about reproductive technology that are, oh, over, yeah, that right. are overstated. Oh, the idea yes. Freeze your, freeze your eggs and yeah, age right. 40, you know, if you have a partner and if you still have energy that you, you might then. Yes, and everything children. goes well. Yeah, if everything goes well. And you have well, the money. Yeah, and you pay, And the emotional stamina. All of that. So part of what I'm um, hoping to do through the documentary and my work after this is to just increase awareness, particularly to women, but you need a man as well, so it's both, that the fertility window is much shorter and the ability to have children 
gets harder and harder and harder. It's not just about getting pregnant. It's about being able to deliver, you know, being able to see the pregnancy through to, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which gets exponentially harder very, very quickly. I should mention I interviewed five fertility doctors for the documentary itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, each one of them wanted to open up about the challenges because normally they have to sell their services. Right. Normally they have to tell people, think positively, here's what we've done for other people, here's what we think we can do for you. Yeah. What they were telling to me openly, I'm frankly getting quite emotional about it on a couple of occasions, was it's terrible because so often it doesn't work out. Mm. Well, you know? one in three couples by the age of 30 have pronounced fertility problems defined as inability to conceive within a year of embarking on the endeavor consciously, right? So that's one in three. And of course, it just gets worse and worse as as age creeps up. And 30 is not that old. And it does mean that women have a damn tight window. It's, it's, it's 13 years, let's say, by the time you're 17, by some standards, you're mature enough to consider reproduction, 17 or 18. And on the, on the extreme end. And, and then, well, 35 is the other end of that distribution. And uh, you're playing with fire by the time you're delaying, especially if you don't have a partner, by the time you're delaying till, till 35. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's the long and the short of it, is fertility sharply drops at 37. If you don't have your kids by then, well, you might not have any. Especially and if you want three children, you know. Yeah, well, right. I'm thinking just one, you know. And, and it's also the case. I think if you're a reasonable observer of human nature, you see that people have three sources of fundamental gratification in their lives. One is their, the pursuit of their own interests, including career and job. One is their intimate relationship, and the other is their family. And obviously, the intimate relationship and the family are very integrally associated and if you miss out on one of those you may be able to fill it by exceptional ability in the remaining domains but for most people not only is that highly unlikely it's also highly undesirable right, right. so to, to, to because to take the point as well you know, here, here am i uh, you know an older uh, male talking about things that are very sensitive to women. But uh, there, there are a lot of women out there saying the exact same mm-hmm. thing. And, you know, there, there was one this morning, I got, got an email from Melanie Notkin, who's written a book called Otherhood, um, who herself has no children. And she put it succinctly that, in her words, women are going through the education path, the career path, to try to ultimately fall in love and have a family. Yeah, right. Which is, again, stupid, because you waste the time that you need to actually find that guy. Exactly. It's all linked. Yeah, well, I think it's the same for men. I think so you too. Know, well, half the reason, half, it's more than that, half the reason that men strive for career success is to impress women and attract them. In fact, it's higher than that. So, but, uh, but, but maybe that point is the heart of the problem we have today because today, if you look at who's at college and who's actually women. earning more right now? I read this morning, it's women in, in cities in the U.S. are earning more than men. Yeah, I don't know yeah, if that's yeah. right or wrong, but you have this situation. That's because they're hypergamous, so they think by earning that salary, they can attract a guy that earns a higher salary, but that's not how that works. Yeah, it's right under 30. Yeah. So in U.S. colleges right now, there are, I believe it's 9.5 million women, 
and around 6.57 million yeah. men. Oh, and the women start dropping out of college, by the way, when, the, when, they, when, the, when they start to outnumber the men two to one, right? Because a lot of the reason people go to college, you know, you got to ask yourself, what's college for? It's like, well, it's to get educated, to go to lectures, to be accredited. It's like, no, probably not. Probably the reason people go to college is to find a mate. And there's a selected pool there, and you have a decent chance of finding someone, you know, of approximately your ability and and uh, forward-looking vision, let's say. And the reason people are willing to shell out between $150,000 and $250,000 for four years is in no small part so that they can find a mate. Well, and if you de demolish that by, well, radically decreasing the number of available men, for example, well, not only this, by the wokest womanist agenda and our culture and all that, don't approach girls and talk to them and so on. You're just going to blow the whole enterprise out of the water, which is already what's happening. And, and, uh, absolutely. Um, and this is perhaps my greatest concern, because I think if we make young people more aware of fertility, the fertility window... It doesn't matter, right? You can tell them all you want, the fertility window, and they still ignore it and then rationalize it away. They might want to have children earlier. If we link that to, in some way, enabling careers later in life, yeah. which has to fundamentally happen for this to work, we might still be left with a situation where women who, the term is hypergeny, where people, women typically want to marry someone at least as educated, at least as successful, yeah. taller yeah. than they are. Yeah. Yeah. But if we're in a situation where there's so few men getting the same level of education, we might be left with this imbalance. Oh, yeah, so that's, that's already happened. That might be already are and already exists. I think clearly, yeah, it's very difficult for women to overcome the hypergamous uh, instinct because they're trying to redress the imbalance in terms of reproductive responsibility. There's no evidence at all. You get a little bit of flattening of hypergamy in extremely egalitarian societies like Scandinavia, but it certainly doesn't disappear. And so that's, that's built in at a very fundamental biological level. And I don't think any casual tinkering on the anthropological or sociological front is going to shift that a bit. So that's a big problem. It's a big so problem. It's also the case too. Yeah, and what that means is that girls need to really think about that before they start on their academic journey, right? That if marriage is where the wife out-earns or out-statuses the husband tend to be comparatively unstable and violent. So, you know, now you can lay that at the feet of the men if you're inclined to, but, it but in some sense it doesn't really matter because that's the way it is. And so the women are unhappy and the men are threatened and that's just not a good, rep that's not a good uh, recipe for marital stability. Uh, so, so everyone loses in this situation. Um, so let's talk about another country, Thailand. So you, you would think... It if you'd asked me how many women are in college in Thailand, I might have said 15%. I have no idea, but... 80. No, it's 55%. 40% mm -hmm. of men are in college in Thailand. So you have a similar shift. Yeah, yeah. Uh-oh, this means that the trend is global. Even there. And what's happening to the, to the men? The documentary, we, we went to, a, to a, a temple where monks are trying to rehabilitate young men who fell out of college or didn't go to college, yeah, moreover. yeah. What they did, age 16, 18, was turn to alcohol, mm -hmm. was turn to substances, yeah. to drive taxis because they could get some cash because there was no point trying to compete with a woman. Yeah. So you have these deep societal problems, but yet they, I want to be really clear that the, the answer to this is not um, 
in some way preventing women from getting an education. That's just not going to function. You know, how are you going to do that? You know, well, you also uh, lose access to half the world's brain power. Of course, that. of course. And, you know, there are people who think that, and there are people who I think want to use this conversation to promote that, because I've seen comments along the, the, those lines too often. This has to be, therefore, partly about um, men in some way, asking why are men excluded from society? Why are they becoming incels? Or in Japan, they call them otakus, you know, the, the young man who stays home playing his mm. gaming systems. And Mayor See, I don't, I don't think that's the right question. I think we almost always ask questions backwards. Why people become useless, that's not a mystery. It's easy to be useless. The mystery is why that doesn't happen to everyone all the time. And the answer is because we build up extremely careful structures of societal discipline to encourage people to adopt mature long-term responsibility and to reward them judiciously for doing so. Ah, so what Jordan's making a case for here is arranged marriage, effectively. And when you allow those structures to collapse or work consciously to undermine them, then you get default to the default. And the default is useless. It's short-term gratification. And so you'd never need an explanation for that. It's like, well, why do people turn to short-term gratification? Because it's gratifying in the short term. It's easy. Now, you know, getting men encouraging men to shed their Peter Pan persona, juvenile Peter Pan persona, and to adopt mature responsibility, that's a real challenge for every society. And uh, we are increasingly not only failing at doing that, but punishing young men for developing, say, the virtues of ambition and, and uh, well, and even sexual desire for that matter. Yep, that's right. Masculine traits are to be demonized, unless they're shown by women, hilariously. So, all right, so chapter one, you went and interviewed a variety of people and, 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 and just started to flesh out the territory. How does it unfold after that? Well, it comes to the point where I realize, there's a moment I realize there is a connection across all of these countries, and it's to do with this structure of the family. You know, you would expect... If you're having fewer children, you know, and some of these organizations encourage people to have fewer children, have fewer smaller families, you would expect if they had had any success or if people were doing it, you would have a lot of families with only one child. But actually, singletons are actually really quite rare in life. And they're no more common today than they were 30, 40 years ago. Mm. So I started to discover... So you, you see people with zero children. Right. That's right. the only, how do you get a fertility rate of less than replacement level? It's either the number of people having one child or none. So connecting that allowed me to start to ask more questions about childlessness mm. and about aspirations in life. And that really moved I see. So it's not a matter of small families. No. It's a matter of no family. That's right. And then it's a matter of involuntary no that's right. family. That's right. Okay, got it. And yeah. that's why I didn't end up doing any regressive analysis because it's, it's, it's a counting problem. You know, we were counting this the wrong way. You just simply need to look at uh, the number of people having one child, two, three, four, and you find this gap and you find that gap getting wider and wider and it effectively expand, ex effectively explains the entire fall below replacement level. But there's, see, really, see, there's really good news here too. Um, the best news in all of this is that if 
the majority or significant number of those people who are involuntarily unplanned childlessness, as I call it, if they were having a family, they're not going to have one. They're going to have in the same proportions, one, two, three, four, five plus. It's all about having that first child. Mm-hmm. So the documentary... Right, that, well, the pre- look, the second child's pretty straightforward after the first. And once you've got two, you're already completely screwed. So you might as well have three. Well, that's... Then the, that's hilarious. Kids start to take care of each other, by the way, too, which is something that parents don't understand, is that, yeah. you know, you don't... If you have eight kids, it's not like you're taking care of eight kids. The kids start to form their own society and take care of each other. Yeah, and there's great examples of that in the documentary, um, or at least on my journey. Over, you saw in Italy this mother of four children saying she educated her eldest daughter, taught her how to read, and she taught the next daughter, right, taught right. the next one, the next one. That's very awesome. So so that's certainly true. But the good news is here, because family structure is really locked in, once, of course, um, you know, if you go to some countries, as I did in Africa, you've got high birth rates because of poverty, uh, somewhat access to reproductive services, but mostly that's covered now. Mostly it is. Mm -hmm. So we got poverty. The people in Africa need children to go and get the water. But a lot of good things are being done on that, that poverty level is coming way down. Right. And we're seeing in Africa, on average in sub-Saharan Africa, just to cover that briefly, um, the average woman is having one less child every 15 years. It's around four now. So in around 30 years' time, we're looking at Africa starting to get down towards replacement level. It's on the same path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the reasonable assumption based on the data right now. So once you get to that point, and this is what I think the world of demography really skipped over um, uh, is that it's not the same um, form. It's not like you look at you know families going from four to two and then down to 1.5 and say, this is the same trend. It's not. When you get to replacement level, when women are having pretty much the family size that they actually want, childlessness kicks in and it it's that that pulls it down a different mm. level. So the next part of the documentary is then going to people, finding out what their young people, what their aspirations for the future was, but then also talking to men and women who hadn't had children, why they didn't, mm-hmm. and what it meant to their lives. Mm-hmm. And that, that gets quite... So what do you find on the aspirational front? And- oh, you know, the, the majority, the significant majority of people, young people, expect or want of children someday. Right, right. Now, I do have some concerns, but I have no evidence for it, but it's just a natural concern that what we're seeing in the world today, uh, perhaps this over-focus on the environment is through fear. Yeah. Persuading people more than you would normally expect to not think of children, but I have hope around that because it's this internal desire. Really yeah, well, I think, I think it's not so much fear that's interfering on that front. I think it's actually demoralization, right? Because... This is especially true for, let's say, decent young men who would like to be moral actors. If they're told continually, which they are, that all of their male pattern behaviors, for example, in school, are disruptive, and that their male ambition is nothing but a reflection of the tyrannical patriarchy, and that any interest they might evoke, they might evince towards women, is part of the predatory pattern of male behavior, they, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous, of course. And it demoralizes them, literally. It makes them feel like their natural proclivity for ambitious striving, let's say, and sexual desire is immoral. And the people you hurt the most by doing that 
are the people who have a moral heart because the ones who don't, don't care. And the ones who do, I had a friend, uh, his name was Rob. The ones who, who don't reproduce anyway. Rob Dernan. And uh, he was an early, he fell prey to this anti-male narrative very early in his life. This is like 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And he was definitely guilty about his role as a patriarchal male, let's say. And he did everything he could to adopt a kind of nihilistic Buddhism and just take himself out of life. You know, he thought everything he did was, and everything that men did in general, was just part of the destructive force that was ravaging the world. And he eventually committed suicide. Oh. It was awful. I watched that unfold for That's 50 horrible. years. You know, and I would say, you know, he had his flaws like everyone does. And in that self-destructive pathway, there can be a fair bit of, let's say, unconscious self-serving. But fundamentally, he was overwhelmed by existential guilt in relationship to being male, and that eventually convinced him to do himself in. It was quite the catastrophic voyage, all things considered. And I, I know perfectly well that that's not rare because I've talked to thousands of young men who have been demoralized to the point of suicide. And that story is, I'd say that's the archetypal story. So, it's not fear exactly. It's it's an it's false teaching which inspires. It's like the elephant that's that's raised with a stick between its legs. It it feels that it's it, that it can't break it, even though it could because it's grown up, right? An assault. It's a moral assault, and it's unconscionable. It's an unconscionable moral assault. If you're solution to saving the planet is that you have to demoralize young people so badly that they even abstain from sex, then there's seriously something wrong with your worldview. And maybe we could call out Paul Ehrlich on that front for it. Uh, sorry, I'm not familiar with the guy, but you could let me know in the comments. We're going to end the video there. Hit the like, hit the sub, hit all for notifications. Drop me a donation like Hunter M, Adrian Altom, and Bobby Dylan, Renaissance Press, and Brian. Show us the most recent Patreon subscriber. Thank you. Go buy my books at bit.ly slash books. My Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash the blog. If you'd like coaching, you can message me at the blog at gmail.com. I'll slot you right in. That's my email. Thank you so much for listening, guys, especially if you listen to the end. I really do appreciate it. Take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next time.